Hi there, you're listening to the Katie Lance Podcast. I'm an entrepreneur, social media strategist, keynote speaker, author, and most importantly, mom. I run our company, Katie Lance Consulting, side by side with my husband, Paul, and our passion is to help real estate professionals get smarter about how they use social media. If you're an entrepreneur, social media geek like me, real estate pro, a mom, or maybe all of the above, you are in the right place. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. You're listening to episode 81 of the Katie Lance podcast. And in this podcast, I am so excited to share with you a very special interview that we had with acclaimed author Richard Rothstein. Richard is the author of the book, The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. And I have to tell you guys, I was so thrilled and honored for the opportunity to interview Richard. What you're about to listen to is a recording that we did a few weeks ago. Um, We did a Facebook Live interview where we really did a deep dive into his book. We talked a lot about uh, the history of housing segregation in the United States. And I have to tell you guys, it was a dream interview. I'm so honored to be able to interview Richard and such an important conversation. So we are going to put a number of links below in the show notes below, especially for those of you in real estate. If you have not read his book, The Color of Law, I cannot recommend it enough. It is such an eye-opening book. And I have to I have to admit, it's a, it's a tough read, but I think it's also a really, really important read. So in the link in the show notes below, you are going to see a link to the original broadcast. So if you'd like to watch us on video, you can watch that video. Uh, you can also check out his book. I highly recommend that. And then there's a number of great resources uh, that Richard also uh, mentions throughout the broadcast, and we will put those links below. So listen up, grab a pen and grab a piece of paper if, if you're at a place where you can do that uh, and, and buckle up. It's going to be a great conversation. So thanks so much for listening today. Hello, hello. Welcome, welcome everyone. My name is Katie Lance, founder and CEO of Katie Lance Consulting and the Get Social Start Academy. And I am so thrilled for our uh, very special interview here today. We are just so thrilled to have a very special guest um, with us today. In today's show, we're going to be talking about housing segregation and how that impacts our lives um, in this day. And so we're very excited to welcome our special guest, Our guest is a distinguished fellow of the Economic Policy Institute and a senior fellow at the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Uh, Fund. He's also the author of the book, The Color of Law, which is an amazing book. I have it uh, well sticky noted here. I've forgotten history of how our government segregated America. So please welcome to our show today, Richard Rothstein. Richard, welcome. Thank you very much, Katie. We are so thrilled to have you here today. Uh, I'm so excited to uh, to have you here today. We definitely have a big audience of real estate agents and brokers uh, who are here with us today. And if you are live and watching us, we would love if you would comment below, say hi, let us know where you're tuning in from. If you're watching this later on the replay, let us know that you watch this later on the replay. Um, and we'd also love if you'd share this broadcast out if you're watching this uh, live. We know that there's lots of folks, especially in the real estate industry, who are gonna be interested in our topic today. Um, And today's topic is obviously a sensitive one, but so important. And so any of you who are watching live, we just ask that you uh, be be respectful, uh, of course, in your comments and questions as we go through our interview today. So Richard, let's go ahead and dive in. Um, You know, the premise of your book is that housing segregation didn't just happen by accident. It was the result of local, state, uh, and national laws that violated constitutional amendments. And so many of these policies um, still affect our neighborhoods today. 
So I would love if you would kind of take us back to the, really the beginning, because it, to, to me, it's, it was really shocking to me to read about, you know, the systematic racism and actions by our government. Um, you know, in the beginning, you talk a lot about what happened with FDR and the New Deal. And so perhaps we can start there and you can talk a little bit about how, how all of this started. Sure. You know, as you just uh, alluded to, we have a national myth uh, a rationalization that we all adopt, the uh, blacks, whites, liberals, conservatives, northerners, southerners. Uh, we tell ourselves that the reason that this country remains segregated, every metropolitan area is segregated with uh, clearly defined areas that are all white or mostly white, clearly defined areas that are all black or mostly black. Uh, we tell ourselves the reason is um, we give this name de facto segregation. It just sort of happened. It was an accident. It happened naturally. Uh, because people like to live with each other of the same race, or maybe uh, private uh, homeowners or landlords refuse to sell a rent to African-Americans in white neighborhoods, or maybe real estate agents and banks, private, industri uh, private industries and private companies uh, discriminated, or maybe it's just the income differences. Uh, uh, you know, African-Americans have lower incomes on average than whites. They can't afford to move to white neighborhoods. You know, all of these individual bigoted, uh, but uh, self-choices, not governmental policies is what's created segregation. And it's a convenient explanation because if it wasn't done by government, it's not a civil rights violation and we don't have to do anything about it. We can think it's too bad, but we don't have an obligation to remedy it. Only if we understood that this was a system that the residential boundaries of every metropolitan area in this country were created, as you say, by explicit, racially explicit government policy, not the unintended consequences of benign policy, but racially explicit government policy designed to ensure that African-Americans and whites couldn't live near one another in, every metro, in any metropolitan area. Once we understand that, it becomes a civil rights violation, something that every one of us as American citizens is obligated to remedy. So I, uh, let me take you back, as you asked, uh, to the New Deal. Uh, the federal government wasn't involved in housing prior to the New Deal. Uh, the first public housing, for example, in this country was built in the Roosevelt administration during the Depression, uh, at the very beginning of the, of the New Deal in 1933. The Public Works Administration built the very first civilian housing in this public housing in this country, and everywhere it built it, it segregated it. Frequently, creating separate projects for blacks, separate projects for whites. Most of them were for whites, by the way, whites only, not for African-Americans, but separate projects, frequently in, in communities that had previously been integrated, creating segregation for the first time. And that may, may surprise you, but uh, in the mid 20th century, we had a lot more integration than we have now because working class families were living in the same downtown areas, white and black. Uh, we were a manufacturing economy at the time. Uh, factories, uh, most uh, most workplaces had to be located near deep water ports or railroad terminals so they could get their parts and ship their final products. So if you had a factory district where both blacks and whites worked, they had to live in broadly the same neighborhood so they could walk to work, take short streetcar rides. Uh, the great African-American poet, novelist, playwright Langston Hughes wrote in his autobiography how he grew up in an integrated downtown Cleveland neighborhood. Says his best friend in high school was Polish. Said he dated a Jewish girl in high school. Not surprising in an integrated high school in an integrated neighborhood. But the Public Works Administration went into that neighborhood of Cleveland, that integrated neighborhood of Cleveland, demolished housing there and built two separate projects 
one for whites, one for African-Americans, creating a pattern of segregation that continues to exist to this day. Uh, in my book, The Color of Law, you know, I like where I can to uh, pick on self-satisfied smug places like the one you live in now. Uh, they think they're better than every place else, but uh, one of them is uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yes. Maybe you've heard of that one. Uh, yes. uh, the area between Harvard and MIT called the Central Square Neighborhood. It was a fully integrated neighborhood in the 1930s. It was about half white and half black. Public Works Administration went into that neighborhood, demolished housing, and built two separate projects, uh, one for whites, one for African-Americans, and with other segregated public projects elsewhere in the Boston area, created and sustained and reinforced the pattern of segregation that exists still to this day. On the West Coast, uh, where you are now, uh, the... Um, the segregation that we know there was created by federal housing programs. Historians describe, describe the uh, migration of African-Americans out of the former slave-holding states into the rest of the country as the Great Migration. And they divide it into two periods. Uh, in the East Coast and the Midwest, African-Americans left the South and, and came to take jobs in the North and Midwest uh, during World War I and immediately afterwards. But very few came to the West Coast uh, during World War I. The second great migration is what brought African-Americans from places like Louisiana and Texas into uh, West Coast cities because uh, World War II was the location of a lot of uh, war plants on the West Coast. Uh, aircraft manufacturing, uh, shipbuilding, uh, was very intense as war industries during the Second World War. And hundreds of thousands of workers flocked to these war plants, both black and white, to take jobs uh, in these war industries. They overwhelmed the communities where uh, these plants were located. And if the government wanted um, uh, to get the, the aircraft and the ships built, it had to provide housing for these workers. And so it did everywhere. Everywhere on the West Coast, as, as it did throughout the rest of the country, it created segregated war housing projects for war workers uh, in communities that had never before known segregation because there were very few African-Americans living on the West Coast prior to that. In San Francisco, for example, uh, the federal government built five war housing projects, four for whites only, one for African-Americans in the Fillmore District, which then became the black neighborhood of San Francisco. And the same policy was followed in, in Portland and Seattle and Los Angeles, creating a, a segregated Western part of the United States that hadn't previously and would not otherwise have been segregated except for those federal policies. Uh, that's one example of one of the things that uh, the federal government did. Uh, if you'd like, I can give you another one that was even more powerful than the federal uh, public housing project. Yes, please, please do. Well, okay, uh, after World War II, the federal government uh, began an explicit, a racially explicit program to move the entire white working class population, white working class population out of urban areas into single family homes in all white suburbs. Uh, it was designed for returning war veterans, but really for anyone who had a job in the post-war economy. Uh, you're familiar, I'm sure everybody who's watching this is familiar with these suburbs. They exist everywhere, creating a white noose around metropolitan areas. Uh, in the Bay Area, uh, Westlake uh, in Daly City, that was uh, 15,000 homes uh, built in this uh, with this federal program for whites only. Uh, the most famous on the East Coast is Levittown, east of New York City, 17,000 homes in one place. These developers uh, 
uh, Henry Dolger, who built Westlake, or uh, William Levitt, who built Levittown, could never have assembled the capital to build these giant subdivisions on their own. Uh, no bank would be crazy enough to lend them the money to build these projects. Uh, the only way they could get the money to uh, build these projects, to buy the land, was by going to the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration, submitting their plans for the development, the um, architectural design of the houses, uh, very detailed plans, the construction materials they were going to use, and an explicit required commitment of the federal government never to sell a home to an African-American. The Federal uh, Housing Administration and Veterans Administration even required these builders, Henry Dolger in Westlake or uh, William Levitt in Levittown and hundreds and hundreds of these suburbs in between, uh, required them to place a clause in the deed of every home, prohibiting resale to African-Americans and rental to African-Americans. And those deeds, the deed language, although it's now unenforceable, still exists in those deeds today. If any of the people watching this live in Westlake or in Levittown, or any of these other suburbs, they can look up uh, the deeds to their homes and they'll see that uh, it's unlawful to have an African-American living in them. Uh, at least it was at, at that time. Well, with this guarantee, uh, these suburbs all across the country were going were built. And, and let me say, this was not a, a requirement, a sort of a rogue requirement of, of bureaucrats working in the FHA and VA who um, had personal bigoted views. Uh, this was written in the Federal Housing Policy Manual. It's a written requirement. Uh, the underwriting manual, which uh, the Federal Housing Administration published, which was distributed to appraisers all over the country, whose job it was to evaluate the applications of builders uh, for federal bank guarantees for these subdivisions. The underwriting manual said explicitly that you couldn't recommend for a federal bank guarantee uh, a development that was going to be integrated. It went so far as to say you couldn't even recommend a for a federal bank guarantee a, a development uh, that was going to be all white if it was going to be located near where African-Americans were living. Because in the words of the manual, and I'm quoting, that would run the risk of infiltration by inharmonious racial groups. Uh, that's the basis of the white suburbs that we have. This notion of de facto segregation is other nonsense. There's no basis in reality to it whatsoever. And that policy in particular, along with the public housing programs that I described, is primarily responsible for the segregation that still exists today. Uh, those homes, Levittown or Westlake, uh, sold in the 1940s, late 1940s, for about eight, dollars $9,000 a piece. They were modest homes. In today's money, that's about $100,000. Any returning war veteran, black or white, could have afforded to move into these suburbs for anybody with a job in the post-war boom can afford a mortgage on a $100,000 home, especially for returning war veterans from whom down payments weren't required. Well, as you know, Katie, uh, those homes in these uh, subdivisions no longer sell for $100,000. You can't buy a home in these subdivisions for $100,000. They now go for three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars in some places a million dollars or more. Um, uh, the white families who bought these homes, working class families, uh, gained over the next, next couple of generations wealth from the appreciation of the value of their homes. They used that wealth to send their children to college. Uh, they used it uh, perhaps to take care of temporary emergencies, maybe a medical situation or maybe temporary unemployment. Uh, they used it to subsidize their retirements, and 
They used it to bequeath wealth to their children and grandchildren, who then had down payments for their own homes. African-Americans were prohibited, prohibited by federal policy from participating in this wealth accumulating policy. The, uh, the result is that today, on average, African-American incomes are about 60%, 60% of white incomes. And you'd think that you'd have a 60% wealth ratio as well. People can save the same amount of money from the same incomes. But in reality, while African-American incomes on average are about 60% of white incomes, African-American wealth is only 5% of white wealth. And that enormous disparity between a 60% wealth ratio and a 5% wealth ratio was entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy practiced in the mid-20th century that every one of us as American citizens has an obligation, an obligation under the Constitution to remedy, to redress. And that wealth gap, let me say, that, that was created by this particular policy, and of course, as we've talked about, there were many, many policies equally racially explicit, but that wealth gap is the major contributor uh, to, so, to much of the social inequality that we have today. Uh, because African-Americans don't have down payments uh, to move into uh, neighborhoods that uh, have higher opportunity, we concentrate them in low-income urban neighborhoods. Uh, it results in the achievement gap between their children and other children, because when you concentrate children uh, with serious social and economic disadvantages, uh, families that are economically insecure, uh, they overwhelm the ability of schools to deal with those those issues. Um, it predicts the health disparities that we have today between blacks and whites. As you know, African-Americans have shorter life expectancies on average, greater rates of cardiovascular disease because they live in less healthy neighborhoods. They were prohibited from moving into healthier places without pollution, without diesel trucks driving through, prohibited from moving to those places. The wealth gap uh, predicts uh, the, the segregation that the wealth gap has created, uh, predicts uh, the police abuse that we've spent so much time in the last few months uh, demonstrating about and talking about, the mass incarceration, couldn't happen if we weren't uh, concentrating the most disadvantaged young men in single neighborhoods without access to good jobs or the transportation to get to those jobs or schools with high achievement. I'm not suggesting that the police would not discriminate at all if we didn't have segregation, but it's much, much more intense when we concentrate a disadvantaged minority population in a single neighborhood. And let me uh, say this one more thing about this particular um, uh, issue. Uh, this wealth gap and the segregation that we have created and that still exists today I think is, is largely responsible for uh, something that's very dangerous and I find frightening, and that is um, the threats to our democracy. Uh, we have a political polarization in this country today that uh, it's not entirely racial, but it largely tracks racial lines. Uh, how can we ever expect uh, to develop a, the kind of common national identity that's necessary to preserve this democracy if so many African-Americans and whites live so far from each other? that we have no ability to understand each other, to empathize with each other, to understand each other's life experiences. So those are the consequences of the unconstitutional policies that the federal government pursued to create segregation. Uh, as I said, because they're unconstitutional, they're civil rights violations, and every one of us has an obligation to remedy them. Absolutely. Uh, you know, there's, we're, we're broadcasting this live and I'm, I'm seeing so many great comments who are uh, people commenting as, as you're talking today. And I think a lot of people uh, knew in theory that some of this existed, but 
but when you really lay it out, how um, how you just did, and, and really, I would encourage any of you who have not read the book, The Color of Law, I've read this through a few times, and um, just to see, Richard, how you really beautifully explain, and really in detail, how, as you said, this is not an accident, and one thing I'd love I'd love to ask you about because I know I, I know like I said we have a really large real estate audience who are watching you and so often um, you know folks will say well we have the Fair Housing Act right and and that that uh, you know all of this has been you know rectified and so I would love for you to touch a little bit on that I know I've heard you say um, in other interviews that you really feel that Fair Housing Act is not powerful enough and so I would love for you to kind of um, elaborate a little bit on your thoughts around that. Sure the the Fair Housing Act passed in 1968, not really enforced until 1988, uh, 20 years later, and even today not adequately enforced. But what it does is it prohibits ongoing discrimination in the sale and rental of housing. It does nothing to undo the permanent segregation that was created in the way I just described. So for example, uh, let's take the example of Levittown that I mentioned before, uh, created as an all white segregated community. The Fair Housing Act uh, says, in effect, okay, African-Americans will now let you into Levittown. And there are some African-Americans who can afford to buy homes for $300,000, $400,000, $500,000 that homes in Levittown now sell for. As a result of the Fair Housing Act, Levittown is now about 2% African-American. In a broader neighborhood, that's about 15% African-American. So the difference between that 15% that you would expect Levittown to be and the 2% that it actually is, uh, is the result of unconstitutional federal policy that the Fair Housing Act is powerless to remedy and that uh, we have never uh, taken an obligation to remedy. In order to remedy that, we need an affirmative action program for sales of home in Levittown. And that's, uh, for example, we need to be subsidizing, seriously subsidizing, Uh, the movement of African-Americans into that community so they can approach the 15% uh, uh, home ownership rate in that community that we would expect to have were it not for an unconstitutional policy. Uh, Real estate agents, of course, can make some contribution to that. Uh, In in the New York Times about three weeks ago, I I wrote an article about the the town of San Mateo in in south of San Francisco, where homes that uh, were um, uh, built in the 1940s, uh, selling from about $5,000 and now selling for a million and a half dollars. And it's an all-white community. Uh, It's a community called Hillsdale in San Mateo. Well, in this article that I wrote in the New York Times, uh, I described, identified the realtors who sold those homes uh, to whites only in the 1940s, the developer who built those homes, the bank that financed those homes. Each of those, uh, each have, each of those, uh, Firms, the real estate agency, the bank, the developer, have successors today uh, that were responsible. I'm not suggesting that the people in those, that the realtors who work for that real estate agency today are bigots. They certainly aren't. But uh, they have a legacy responsibility uh, for the creation of segregation in that community and should be creating uh, private down payment assistance funds to help to subsidize. Uh, African-Americans to move into a community that's otherwise unaffordable to them. So um, there are things, uh, there are responsibilities that the private industry has today to remedy this uh, unconstitutionally created situation. It's not that the government wasn't primarily responsible uh, 
But, you know, in, in uh, post-World War II Germany, it's clear the Nazi government was responsible for the Holocaust. Nobody denies that. Yet the private businesses that cooperated with the Nazi government have paid reparations to uh, survivors and, and descendants of, of victims of the Holocaust. So uh, I'm not, I think a similar um, reasoning applies today. The primary responsible for remedying this is certainly the federal government's but the federal government could not have implemented this without the cooperation of banks, realtors, and developers. And uh, that needs to be remedied as well. Absolutely. There was a couple points in your book that really stuck out to me and, and uh, really kind of heartbreaking in, in, in many ways. There are a few times I had to quite honestly just sort of put your book down and just really kind of absorb what I, what I just read. And, and a few things I just, I want to just pull out, you know, um, a lot of folks in, in real estate, uh, we'll talk about the, the, the National Association of Realtors Code of Ethics that was adopted in 1913. And you talk about in your book how um, in 1924, there was a, a the, the code added a warning um, in addition to the code of ethics that, and I'm going to quote this, actually went on uh, uh, their website uh, just yesterday to make sure I pulled this up exactly. It says a realtor should never be instrumental in introducing a neighborhood, members of any race or nationality or any individuals whose presence will be clearly uh, be de- detrimental to property values in that neighborhood. Um, and it's just, it, it's just very, very surprising to me. Uh, you know, when, when I read that, um, the other thing that I, I wanted to point out also was you have a whole section in your book about um, the freeway system and how uh, you know so many African American homes were, were really obliterated by the freeway system. Um, I would love for you to kind of touch on, on both of those. I realize those are slightly different but slightly related related subjects, and I'm, I'm also curious to know if African Americans were ever compensated for their homes uh, that that were basically taken away because of this, the, these freeway systems. Well, as to the first point, uh, this code of ethics, this relates to what I said a few minutes ago, and that is that uh, the real estate industry was a willing participant in this federal policy. Uh, in fact, uh, more than a willing participant, uh, we had uh, in the uh, 1930s when these policies were being implemented, <clears throat> excuse me, the same kind of revolving door in government that we have now in regulatory industry. So most of the most of the officials of the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration came from the real estate industry. So the real estate industry was a willing participant in, in these policies. But uh, I want to emphasize that because uh, it was the government, maybe the officials were real estate agents uh, in their prior careers, but it was government that was doing it, it makes an unconstitutional system. If it was simply real estate agents acting in their private capacity, with this code of ethics, we could say, well, you know, that's de facto segregation. They were bigots. This is not de facto segregation. They were using the full power of the government to implement these policies. And that creates an obligation on all of us as American citizens to remedy it. So far as the highway system goes, you're absolutely right. Uh, the federal highway system uh, was created uh, in the 1950s for the first time. And uh, it left uh, to, it to local officials to design the routes of the highways uh, that went through cities, uh, the, the spur routes that went through through urban areas. And frequently the local officials um, in an unconstitutional fashion again, uh, designed these highways for the purpose 
of reinforcing or creating segregation uh, in two ways. One is uh, frequently the highways were built to create a barrier between black and white neighborhoods. And by the way, this kind of barrier was something that was recommended by that underwriting manual that the Federal Housing Administration uh, uh, issued. Uh, it was recommended that the highway be designed as a barrier to uh, separate black from white neighborhoods. Uh, probably the best example of that is uh, well known in, in Chicago, the Dan Ryan Expressway that runs through the south side, clearly a dividing line between black and white neighborhoods. But as you said, uh, the freeways were also sometimes routed for the purpose of destroying black neighborhoods that were located near downtown areas when local officials wanted to move black families away from downtown into more distant, uh, low-income, segregated neighborhoods. And in my book, uh, In the Color of Law, I, I focus particularly as an illustration on Miami, where uh, I-95 was just driven through a black neighborhood uh, the, um, uh, to destroy it and force African-Americans to move uh, elsewhere. In California, the Santa Monica Freeway was routed specifically to destroy a neighborhood that African-Americans had started to move into. There was a, another easily available route just uh, north of the Santa Monica Freeway uh, that could have been used, but the, the um, city had tried in a number of ways to uh, prevent African-Americans from moving into this. It was called the Sugar Hill neighborhood from moving into it. And when these other means to discourage them from moving into it didn't succeed, they simply drove the freeway through that neighborhood, destroying a, um, a neighborhood where, where African-Americans were living. So this was another common tactic that was used. Uh, when the federal government was doing these uh, kinds of things, it was a violation of the Fifth Amendment. When it was state and local government, it was a violation of the 14th Amendment, equally a civil rights violation, equally requiring remedial action on our part today. Absolutely. So I'd love to talk a little bit about schools because schools, especially um, in the real estate world, are, are always a hot topic. You know, um, consumers are always asking, what's the best schools? And, you know, that's always such a big conversation. And, uh, you know, right now, obviously, there's a lot of conversation around schools and test scores and, and textbooks and what's taught in school and things like that. And I would love if you would touch a little bit on how you think education uh, plays into housing segregation and, and perhaps touch on the role of, of school quality in determining desirable neighborhoods, um, perhaps how college administration policies can, you know, are reinforcing this residential segregation. Well, uh, yeah. Um, in my view, uh, real estate agents should not be using school ratings by outfits like uh, Great Schools or, or Zillow that these, uh, I think, are violations of the Fair Housing Act under the present administration. That They're not going to rule that, but I think they're clearly violations of the Fair Housing Act because the quality of a school is not determined by its test scores. Uh, this is a very recent phenomenon that we've decided to rate schools by their test scores. It's a product, really, of the No Child Left Behind law. It's only 20 years ago. Before that, we had a much more nuanced uh, view of what school quality is. Uh, and by using um, school ratings that uh, are comprised primarily of test scores, what we are doing is signaling to families that they should move into um, wider, more um, uh, neighborhoods where parents are more highly educated 
because that's the indication of a good school. It's not the indication of a good school. If we were going to indicate a good school, we would be looking at a number of things. Does it turn out good citizens? These are the kinds of things we used to look at. Does it have a good art and music program? Does it turn out well-rounded uh, children? Is it a diverse school? A school that uh, is preparing children to live in a multiracial, multi-ethnic society is a much better school than a school that might have higher test scores that's uh, perpetuating segregation. So I think that it's very, very misleading for uh, realtors to be suggesting to homeowners that uh, if they move to a school with higher test scores or neighborhood with higher test scores, they're getting a better school. They are not. Uh, as um, you, you just suggested, I think uh, college admissions uh, uh, policies reinforce this uh, Fair Housing Act violation uh, to the extent they use test scores uh, as a, um, a measure for evaluating applicants. Um, one, I'm, I'm writing a, a new book now about the remedies that uh, we can do. And one of the things I'm, I'm recommending is that alumni press their um, uh, colleges if they, if they graduated from uh, selective colleges uh, to give a priority, give a preference to children who grow up in a diverse neighborhood. Um, rather than uh, giving an emphasis to test scores, which is really just a signal of segregation. Uh, if you gave a priority uh, in admissions to children who grow up in a diverse neighborhood, in a neighborhood that's not all white, um, what you would do is give families an incentive to move to such neighborhoods and um, preserve and, and maintain some measure of desegregation. So it's a, it's a very complicated system we've got. Uh, uh, real estate agents and college admissions officers reinforce it, but um, there are some things that are fairly easy to remedy, and this is one of them. It won't make a giant difference, but uh, it would be it would be a significant step if we uh, stopped encouraging parents to believe that a na uh, neighborhood's quality is uh, measured by the test scores of the children in the schools. Well, and I also thought it was really. Uh really eye-opening when you talk about what's what's in textbooks. And I know that's that's such a hot conversation. It was just up in the news today uh, as we watched this, you know, as, we, as we're recording this live today. And, um, you know, we certainly don't need to have a political conversation about it if, if you're not comfortable with that. But I, I do think that, you know, it's it's obviously um, shocking uh, to me, at least, that a lot of what you're talking about today with, with the facts of what's happened over the course of history is, is not in our textbooks, or if it is, it's a little bit of a, a, a watered down version um, of that. I was just chatting with a colleague about that yesterday um, as well. And I have to say, I was tempted to run over to my uh, my kids' bedrooms because they're distance learning right now and, and pull open their textbooks and see, you know, what's what's in there. So I love that you brought that up. Um, I, I would love to also just ask you, you know, as we get kind of towards the end of end of our interview here today, are there any next steps, you know, thoughts of what we could do, what we could do next, you know, whether whether uh, whether there's folks in real estate. Obviously, we do have a big real estate audience here, but I know we have folks from all different backgrounds who are tuning in to uh, to listen to you here today. So, um, would love any of your thoughts on, on on steps and action steps we might be able to do. Feels a little bit overwhelming sometimes as an individual. We think, oh gosh, what what is it that I could do? So, if you have any. Um, tips or advice, I would I would love to share that with, share that with our audience. Well, let me combine the the two things the two things you just talked about. A very simple thing that everyone can do is to examine the textbooks that are being used in our local schools and see if they tell the truth about this history. Uh, 
there's no doubt about the history that I just described to you. This book has been out for over three years and not a single fact uh, that I described in the book that I, or that I described to you today has been challenged by a, any historian. So there's no question that, that we have an unconstitutional system of segregation. As you know, in the book, uh, I review uh, all the commonly used uh, textbooks used in American history classes in high schools all over the country today. And uh, I show that every one of them lies about this history. They lie about it. Uh, they, they promote the de facto segregation myth. They talk about the great deeds of the New Deal and creating housing, public housing for the first time and uh, suburbanization, never once mentioning that it was done on a segregated basis and that African-Americans are prohibited from participating in this, in this program. Uh, one of the things that everybody can do is mobilize to insist that their local school districts teach this history accurately. And by the way, that's another thing that should be used in evaluating the quality of a school. If uh, realtors are trying to direct home buyers to neighborhoods that have good schools, if it's a school that's teaching this myth of de facto segregation, that's not a good school. And let me say that if the next generation uh, doesn't learn this history any better than present generations have, they can be in as poor a position to remedy it as we've been. So it's essential. And that's a step that, that anybody, uh, any citizen can take uh, to examine their local school, the way they're teaching this history. So far as what's next, um, I happen to be working with a, a group of uh, national civil rights leaders, uh, uh, fair housing leaders, to create a, a new national committee to redress segregation and housing. It's a mode of, of operation will be to work in local communities to create local civil rights groups that will um, take action to make it uncomfortable to maintain segregated patterns in those communities. Uh, if, um, if anybody uh, who's, who's listening to this or watching this in, in your program wants to be notified when we launch this national committee, they should let me know and um, we'll be sure to put them on the list to get the notification. That's fabulous. That's, that's fantastic. Um, should they email you? Would that be the easiest way to? Sure. My email, my email, I'm not hiding. I'm, I'm, <laughs> you, know, you can easily find me on the web. Uh, you go to the Economic Policy Institute where I worked before I retired and they, they still have a page up there for me and the email address is there. Uh, so I'm easy to find. That's perfect. And for any of you watching live, or if you're listening to this later on the podcast, um, I'm happy to um, share a number of links with you. I've got a link to Richard's, Richard's book on Amazon. Um, we have the New York Times link that he uh, referenced. It's a great read. I just uh, reread that yesterday myself. We also have a link to um, a short documentary uh, narrated by, Ms., uh, by Mr. Rothstein, Segregated by Design. So I'm happy to send any of those links uh, to all of you who are listening. Feel free to just either send me an email or if you want to drop your email in the chat below, I'm happy to send those over to you um, uh, shortly. So, Katie, let me, let me, can I add one thing? Uh, that that uh, short video, 17-minute animated film, is designed for high school students. It's mm -hmm. one way that uh, people can get their local schools to teach this history accurately. There's also a link which I'll send you uh, to a curriculum, a curriculum unit that uh, some teachers have developed that um, can be adopted in any school. It's free. Uh, both the video and the curriculum unit are free. 
There are uh, 70,000 teachers in this country who are now using this curriculum unit, but that's a tiny fraction of the teachers who are who should be using it. Local schools should be uh, requiring this, not just leaving it voluntarily to teachers. So I'll send you that link as well. That'd be great. Yes, thank you so much. And like I said, everyone watching live, if you'd like any of those links, either email me or since you're just on Facebook, if you're listening to this live on Facebook, feel free to just comment below, uh, put your email below, and I'm happy to, to send all those links out to you. Um, Richard, thank you so much for your time today. And, uh, you know, thank you so much to everyone who, uh, who has tuned in today. We, we sure appreciate it. If this uh, conversation has moved or inspired you, um, as, it, as I know it has for me, uh, please turn on your, uh, your Facebook notifications. We, we like to do these Facebook Lives uh, often, and we like to bring on some great authors and great speakers. Um, we'd also love if you'd subscribe to our, pod- our podcast, the Katie Lance Podcast, and feel free to share this link out with your friends, with your colleagues. Obviously, this is such an important and timely conversation. I couldn't think of a better time to have this conversation around segregation and racism than right now. And as, as I've heard you say before, Richard, um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna quote you, I heard you in an interview, you said, what's missing is a new civil rights act, as John Lewis, uh, the great John Lewis said, uh, some, some more of good trouble, <laughs> that's what we need. So thank you again, Richard, thank you so much for being with us today, we so appreciate your time. Thank you, Katie. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, we would love if you would subscribe and leave us a review. Also, make sure you visit me over at katielance.com where you can sign up for our free email newsletter, find out about upcoming events I'm speaking at, and check out what our Get Social Smart Academy is all about. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.